Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on April 29th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... And there were times where it seemed like it was going to kind of all fall apart, but at a certain point I, I got confident that they were going to pull it off, but it was dicey from time to time. That's Seth Fletcher. He's the author of the book Einstein's Shadow, a black hole, a band of astronomers, and the quest to see the unseeable. It's an account of the long struggle to capture that image of a black hole that was announced on April 10th. As Seth is also Scientific American's chief features editor, it was pretty easy to get him to sit down and talk about the book and the image. Seth, what is the big deal about actually being able to visualize a black hole? Why did they want to do this so badly? Well, no one's ever seen a black hole. Well, now we have. But as of a couple weeks ago, no one outside of the astronomers in the Event Horizon Telescope had seen a black hole. Um, this gets into all sorts of questions about what it means to actually see a black hole. But for now, I'll just say that um, black holes kind of fell out of Einstein's general theory of relativity 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. Um, and people kind of refused to believe that it had physical significance, these mathematical singularities, sort of like the equivalent of dividing by zero, which we all know from, you know, you taught very early, can't divide by zero, it's undefined. Um, it's the same is kind of true about what happens to, uh, in, in the math of Einstein's equations. But um, the question was, does this mean anything for, you know, the physical reality? And Einstein himself refused for a very long time to believe that it did. And it wasn't until about 50 years later when um, radio astronomers started finding quasars that they figured that there was nothing that could explain them other than what came to be called black holes. Uh, so, But even then, nobody had actually seen a black hole. Uh, they are, by definition, unseeable in a sense in that they trap all light that goes in. But they cast a shadow. You know, I'm, I'm used to saying in interviews like this that they should cast a shadow. Now we know that they do, now that we've actually seen the image. But that is just so small and so hard to see that it's taken decades for astronomers to even get to a place where they thought it might be possible. And the image that became famous is a sort of an orange ring around nothing. Um, what is that orange ring? What does that actually represent? Well, the orange ring has a few different components. I think the, the image is a little too blurry to see this feature, but there's a feature called the last photon orbit, and it's just this perfect ring. It's the, it's the last stable orbit for photons, light, before they plunge into the black hole. And basically that light is just trapped kind of forever going in a perfect circle. If you're looking at the image, if you just consider up north and down south, you know, you'll see that it's, it's, it's lighter orange on the top and darker orange on the bottom. What all that orange glow is, is, uh, is matter swirling the event horizon at, you know, an appreciable fraction of the speed of light glowing at about a hundred million degrees. And, um, it's swirling. It's, it's, it's on the verge of falling in, but it hasn't fallen in yet. So that stuff is called the accretion disk. What you see in the, in the, in the south, southern part of the image, the bottom, is uh, the part of the accretion emission that's boosted because it's coming toward us. And what's weird about black holes is you can't see behind them. Um, 
what you're actually seeing in the image is the 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 way space-time is warped the ring that's up at the top is actually behind it if that makes any sense and what you're seeing at the bottom is the image is the is the accretion that's coming toward us so it appears brighter um and this is all as weird as it seems kind of exactly what theory predicted a long time ago right because you have to keep in mind that you're not looking at a disc well you're you're looking at a disc but that disc represents a sphere and so the the ring around it represents the in, the encasement of that sphere in a sense yeah i mean so think about saturn saturn's not a black hole so we can't see behind it but if the rings of saturn were an accretion disk flowing you know, orbiting a black hole uh and we were looking at the black hole sort of face on the quote unquote behind part of the ring the ring that goes behind it uh, from our perspective would actually look like it goes up above it up and over it and that's just i mean it's because of the way gravity warps space-time and it's very very strange but now we know that it's real and we can see it so you wrote this whole book about the effort to visualize the black holes that have have that we've now seen um and you follow this incredibly diverse cast of characters uh focusing really on uh one fellow mostly but you you talk about a whole lot of people how did they do this i mean you have to create through other telescopes a telescope that a telescope that is literally the size of our entire planet and you have to manage an international consortium and fund it um how did all that work and why were you so interested in it that you spent years tracking their progress uh, and released the book just before they released their successful finding well i mean that's it took the entire book to kind of describe how they did it um well i can tell you when i started following them and what had happened by then so it was Early 2012, January 2012, I found out about this thing called the Event Horizon Telescope, um, and I thought it just sounded insane. I didn't even know that anything like this would, would be even remotely possible. So I got in touch with uh, Shep Dolman, the director of the EHT, and asked if I could come up to MIT and, and talk to him. And, uh, and then I invited myself along on one of their early observing runs. They were going out at that point every spring with three telescopes and looking at M87, the one that they took a pic just took a picture of, and Sag A star, which is the black hole at the center of the Milky Way, and others. And by that point, they had they were sort. It was like it was kind of like a startup at that point. You know, they had gotten some press. They were pretty sure what they were doing was was possible, but they didn't have the telescopes. They didn't have the money. Uh, you know, the, the big telescopes that they needed to add to their collection to make this possible were ALMA, which is the world's most powerful millimeter wave, uh, radio telescope. It's in Chile. Uh, the, the large millimeter telescope in Mexico, the South pole telescope. And then there, there are some in Europe that joined. So, some of these telescopes weren't even quite finished. ALMA and the LMT weren't quite finished. Um, 
even when they were finished, they would have to be retrofitted with all this equipment, like atomic clocks and all of this sort of hand-built digital signal processing equipment to suck in all of the light that they could possibly gather. Let me just say, so when I, what initially drew, drew me to the story was that it sounded completely impossible, and yet people were taking it seriously enough that it, seriously, professional. it was clear that professionals thought it was not impossible. And so I went on this trip with them to Hawaii and watched them work for about a week and got to know the characters. And and then I kind of watched them from a distance for about six months and, and saw them make some progress and publish a paper and get another grant and stuff. And then I, and then I asked Shep if I could just tag along and, and write a book, basically be an embedded reporter and chronicle their journey. And I wasn't sure how long it would take. And it was kind of a big gamble. Um, and from then on, I would make, you know, four or five or six trips to Boston every year to Cambridge and meet everyone and follow the telescopes in Mexico, uh, mostly at that point, and uh, fly around, visit people at different universities and go to conferences and watch them assemble this group of people, really, um, and what kind of happened at that point, pretty soon after I started following them, they kind of had gotten enough money and enough traction that people started to figure out that it was possible, uh, you know, kind of likely to happen if they got all the money. And so then a lot of people wanted in. And so then they had to manage other groups coming in and saying, we want to join, we want to join. Um, and it kind of just agglomerated into this big, unruly international organization that um, they kind of had to turn it into, it was like, it was like watching a startup kind of turn into a corporation, I guess, is what sort of happened over the course of the book. And it was really a painful process for them. And there were times where it seemed like it was going to kind of all fall apart, but they, they did it. I, at a certain point, I, I got confident that they were going to pull it off, but it was dicey from time to time. Now, we're dealing with radio telescopes, not optical telescopes. And so we're, we're accumulating a lot of data. And then this team is putting that data together to create this image. And so what you're seeing is an interpretation of the radio data, not an actual image that has been captured optically. I don't know if... if the general public fully got that. And that orange color is a, a choice made by the people who are assembling the data into the image. Sure. You know, I, I found this strange at first, too. But then when you start looking into how images are made, it, it is an image in 1.3 millimeter wavelength light. Um, and then it's color coded for the intensity of that light. Um, and that's really not all that different from the way we see the world. You know, we see a band of visual light, you know, light, radio light is light. The, in the book, I use radio light instead of radio waves because I, it, it just, I think it confuses people to think about radio telescopes or they're listening to things like, no, they're not. They're just collecting light that is lower in frequency than the light we can see with our eyes. But it comes from actual things out there in space, just like all light. Um, you know, if you were right up next to this black hole, 
you would be you would see some stuff with your own eyes, but we don't receive that light. There's only a tiny fraction of the light that reaches us from the very, very edge of the black hole. It's this tiny slice of microwaves. And the fact that it makes it to the surface of the Earth so that it's possible for us to record it is kind of an insane miracle. So it's a radio image, but I think when after talking to them and doing some research and eventually wrapped my head around the fact that a radio image is not really all that different from, say, an infrared image or a black and white image, which I think we would all agree is not all that different from a color image. Uh, so it, it is a picture, you know, it's a real picture, um, but we would just never be able to see it in any other slice of light other than what they used. One way to think of, you can think about an image as a, basically a map, a picture, a two-dimensional picture is a two-dimensional map of this space, and it has coordinates, and in each pixel there is something representing the intensity of your chosen wavelength of light coming from it. Um, and where it's completely black, there's no light at all. And then where there are different shades of orange, that represents the intensity of the 1.3 millimeter wavelength light. It's still an accurate map of the stuff that is glowing in that frequency. And it glows in other frequencies too. We just, with current technology and the limitations of being on Earth and millions of light years away, we just can't see that. But it is a real thing. <laughs> Mm hmm. So the the original intent was to try to get an image of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Um, but the image that got all the attention was the black hole at the center of M87, which is way, way further away and just incredibly. <laughs> there's no way to appreciate just how big it really is. I mean, the black hole is bigger than our entire solar system, right? Yeah. So it's 15 light days across uh, from one edge. Of the, the dark circle in the center of the image is put a ruler across the middle of the black circle. It's diameter of eight, 15 light days. So the big focus, a lot of the attention for years and, and in the book has been on Sagittarius A star because it's sort of it's our own supermassive black hole. It's at the center of the Milky Way. It's much smaller, but it's also much closer. And basically, the because of the relative, relative size and relative distance, Sagittarius A star and M87 are about the same apparent size on the sky, uh, which is why they're both visible to the Event Horizon Telescope. The re I don't know. It, it's possible that they got an image of Sagittarius A star that they still haven't fully cleaned up or become comfortable with. Um, you know, it, it, these things can just kind of turn on accidents, like some of the data from one of the telescopes might be slightly corrupted in a way that, uh, you know, because, I mean, tiny, tiny mechanical issues can derail these massive experiments or just make it like, just to where they're not confident enough to say, yes, this is a, this is a picture of Sagittarius A, the star that will pass scientific peer review. I don't really know what the story is with the Sagittarius A star situation. I do know that, you know, a few months after the observation, I started to get a sense that maybe the M87 data was coming out cleaner than the Sagittarius A star data, probably just because of like technical accidents. Um, 
And it might actually be a little harder to see Sagittarius A star because there's a lot of stuff lying between us and the black hole in the galactic center just based on where we are in the galaxy. And so it was kind of a surprise that M87 came first, but in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been. But, you know, we'll see Sagittarius A star at some point. Uh, I don't know when, but it'll happen. So the, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is about how far away from us? 26,000 light years. And the black hole that we've now visualized, how far away is that? 55 million light years. It's, you know, you really, we're dealing with these numbers, but um, as you said in the book, if somebody was looking through a telescope from the other side of the Milky Way at Earth, if they saw people, they would be Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, but Neanderthals would be one of the species that would be visible to them as happening in there now. Right. So then go 55 million light years away and, you know, they, they've tuned in just a little too late to see dinosaurs. Yeah. I, the time machine aspect of the universe is very weird. You know, I had early on when I was working on this book, I, I've never been like an astronomy buff, never had a like super nice telescope or anything. But when I went on that first trip to Hawaii, to Mauna Kea on an observing run, there's a there's a park ranger station right near the base camp where the astronomers stay when they're at the when they're at the telescopes. And they had a bunch of like nice amateur telescopes out there and it's a public thing and you can go. They have people who work for the park service operate the telescopes and point you towards stuff. And um, there was this moment where I, I, I stepped up and looked through one of the telescopes and saw a nebula just hanging there in the sky. It was like, I was like, it looks like an amoeba or something. And I, I just, this experience, I was like, oh my God, it's just right up there. There's, <laughs> it's, there's nothing between us and that thing that, that is up there on the sky. Uh, and it is visible. Just need this machine to see it. And, and that's like really a kind of a stupid and mundane uh, observation, but it kind of, it, it was it was striking for me uh, to realize that all this stuff is just up there and, 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 and clearly visible if we have the right tools. And the same is true of black holes, supermassive black holes that have enough stuff around them that's glowing so that we can see their shadows. And, and what do you think the, I don't know, psychological effect might be of having visualized this black hole? I don't know if we're capable of having a mass sort of psychological moment <laughs> these days, like the way that we did like with the, the, the moon landing, because there's so much noise and, and insanity going on and it's so hard to get anyone's attention. Um, but for a day, I mean, it was on the cover of every major newspaper. People really freaked out about this picture. Um, it was, a, it was a big deal. I think people really, were awed by it. You know, in terms of what it means, I, that's hard to say, but, you know, I think, so uh, one of, uh, an astronomer or an astrophysicist, uh, Priya Natarajan, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times um, right before this was released. Uh, she's, a, she's a friend and a friend of the Event Horizon Telescope, and she went to school with Shep Dolman, the, the director. But she, she put it really nicely in this thing. She said that, you know, astronomical images have agency. So they sort of force us to 
except that these things that were once theoretical are actually physical objects out there in the world. They're part of our world. Um, and it'll probably take a long time for that to sink in, but it, it is really, truly bizarre when you, when you sit down and, and stare at that image for a minute and think about it. The fact that the universe is studded with these just holes in space, waterfalls of space time, and we don't know what really happens at the center of them. They're these enduring mysteries, and we're going to be studying them you know, for the rest of my life, uh, which is really interesting. Now we've seen one. Like we're sort of in a new, we're in a new era now. We've seen a black hole um, and we'll see more. So that, that's cool. I don't know if there's going to be a moment when it just sinks into the human consciousness that, that we, that this has happened. But, uh, you know, I, I do think it's meaningful and interesting. Um, we'll see in retrospect how we all feel about it. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read Angus Chen's story about how a miracle molecule can stabilize solar cells, improving their efficiency. Many of you will agree that it really is a miracle molecule when I tell you that it is, in fact, caffeine, one of the all-time best molecules. Am I right, people? And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 